I have selected three passages of Scripture for our subject today. The first one is taken from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, and verse 43. The second one in 2 Corinthians, chapter 12, verses 3 and 4. And the last one, the latter part of Revelation, chapter 2, and verse 7. For our subject today, we have chosen the subject of heaven compared to a paradise. Heaven compared to a paradise. And this will be the last in this series of messages dealing with the theme of death and the hereafter. Follow with me as I read these three selected passages dealing with paradise and that idea. First, from Luke chapter 23, we have the statement of our Lord to the dying thief on the cross, who had asked of him, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And the Lord's reply was this, Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Then, a statement taken from the words of Paul in a special spiritual revelation that was given to him, as recorded in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 3 and 4. Paul states these words, that, I knew a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. God knoweth. How that he was caught up into paradise, and heard unspeakable words which is not lawful for a man to utter. If you would take time to look at the context there, you'll also find that the word paradise is used synonymously with the third heaven. That it was caught up into the third heaven. Generally, it is understood the first heaven being the heaven of the clouds, the second heaven, the heavens where the planets, the stars, and the galaxy exist, and the third heaven, the very abode or the central dwelling place of God. Now, lastly, in Revelation 2, verse 7, the Lord Jesus Christ speaking, To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Well, we've been a number of weeks now dealing with the theme of death and the hereafter. And last week we looked at heaven compared to a crown of life. Today we examine it from the perspective of a celestial paradise. Paradise in the scripture is in a twofold sense. First, the Garden of Eden was Adam's earthly paradise before he fell in the sin. And then secondly, heaven is a place of glory where is redeemed man's eternal or celestial paradise. Just as man started out in his existence in a paradise, so shall redeemed man spend his eternal existence in a paradise. So let us look at these two comparisons, these analogies, to the earthly paradise which Adam was placed in in Eden, and the heavenly paradise which the redeemed saints of God go to on death, and spend eternity thereafter. First of all, Eden's paradise was a place of beauty and pleasure. 
It was not some run-down side of the tracks that God created for Adam to dwell in. It was a place of immense beauty and gave Adam perfect satisfaction and contentment. So much for the idea that modern-day socialism is founded upon that if you can just provide man with a paradise, his inherent goodness will demonstrate itself. Adam was placed in a perfect environment, and yet sin entered into man and destroyed that environment. Now then look in Genesis chapter 2 and verses 8 through 17 as we see what a beautiful paradise that Adam was given from the hand of the Creator. Genesis chapter 2 verse 8. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant in the sight, and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. You notice that the environment is described by words good and pleasant. That is a paradise. Everything that Adam needed was good and pleasant, and the center of all that focused upon the tree of life, which denotes that which is the most satisfaction that a man of Adam's race can partake of. Look in verse 10. And a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from thence it was parted and became into four heads. The name of the first is Pison, that is which compassed the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. There is Bedellium and the onyx stone. And the name of the second river is Gahan, the same as that that compassed the whole land of Ethiopia. And the name of the third river is Hiddekel, that is it which goeth toward the east of Assyria. And the fourth river is Euphrates. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. Now that is why that based upon these ancient documents here of Moses, that it is generally conceded that from Bible teachers that the garden of Eden was in the Middle East. That is in the present land of where the, uh, uh, what's his name, has uh, given us all the problems over there right now, uh, Saddam Hussein, where the Euphrates River and those other rivers which they can be identified with this. It's certainly not a paradise there now. Something has happened since God has created it, sinners entered into it. But it is a beautiful place, trees, pleasant, good food, riches, gold, silver, there to partake of. We read in verse 15, The Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. That's a paradise. Everything that you see, you have access unto it. That which is good and pleasant, be it food, be it for riches, for trading purposes, whatever it is, it's there for your enjoyment and satisfaction. But, verse 17, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. 
That is, man, you are to remember that while I have given you the sovereign right to partake of all of that which is lawful, you are also to be reminded, I'm still the sovereign and you must honor me. Stay away from this one tree that identifies with my sovereign right as creator. I've placed you over the creation, but you remember that I am over you. You shall never be God. Don't attempt to enter into that right which is mine. So man was originally placed in a beautiful and pleasant place called a paradise, a place which is of immense beauty. Now go to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21. I'm going to read some selected verses from chapter 21 and 22. Verse 1 of Revelation 21, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, come coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a great voice out of heaven, saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow, nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. Now here are some things which have entered in since the first paradise. And they came in as a result of the fall of man when God put a curse upon this present earth. And that curse will be lifted one day. And man will again, who has been redeemed, be able to partake of a restored paradise in the presence of God. He that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are faithful. Verse 9, There came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, I'll show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the new Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God and her, and, uh, and her light was like that up to a stone most precious, even as a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Now, if you would take time to read that, you'll see some comparisons between verses 12 down through verse 21 in the beautiful gold and precious stones that are associated with this paradise as Moses was given the understanding of Eden in the original paradise. Only this which is being described here in verses 11 through 21 is not a material city or a material creation. It is a symbolism of the saints of God which make up the Lamb's wife the bride. Now look down in verse 22. I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it, and the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory of the honor of the nations into it, 
And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. And he showed me a pure river of water of life. Remember in Genesis? The rivers that flowed out of Eden. Now look at the second Eden. He showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. And his servants shall serve him, and they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. There shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun. For the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and forever. Verse 14, Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life, and may enter in through the gates into the city. Folks, here I've read to you extensively the Bible's description of two paradises. One, an earthly paradise created for man in his origin to dwell in. In the Garden of Eden, a place of immense beauty and pleasure. We look upon this old earth today and we see some remnants of that beauty still left but very few. I wonder what it would have been like to have lived in Eden. You ever thought about it? What a beautiful place it must have been. I can still recall as about a seven or eight year old boy having grown up around Springfield, Missouri and some beautiful Ozark country there, a lot of farmland, when my parents took me to what is known as Lake Tahoe in uh, the western section of the United States. I recall it's about a hundred miles drive around that lake. It would probably cause me great sorrow to go out there and see the lake today as I've had descriptions of it given to me by people, heard the reports on television, all the pollution that's dumped in it and everything. But you take back around uh, 45, 46 years ago, I can never remember or never forget the immense beauty that that place made upon my mind as a young boy. To be able to drive up through those mountains around that lake and look down upon that beauty and see the island out in the center of it, it's, I can almost still picture it, and I have never been back there for 46 years. I wonder what Adam had access unto. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Perfect satisfaction in everything. If I understand the Bible correctly, and I hope I do, there were no thorns and thistles. Nothing worked against Adam. There was no curse. Everything that was there existed for Adam's satisfaction. His honor, his glory. God was good unto Adam when he created him. Let us remind ourselves of that as Christians. God is good to us today, even in giving us a fallen world to live in. For he could have sent us all 
to perdition. We're able to partake of the sun, the influence of the moon, the water, the wind, and the beauty. But if I am also correct in understanding there was no weather system like we have today, for in Genesis the Bible tells us that a mist came up from the earth and watered it. And I believe that what was taking place in that original creation is that with the great expanse of water that existed in the heavens prior to the flood, is that you had a greenhouse environment that would so shelter the sun's rays that it would account for tremendous growth of vegetation and plants and animals. And if you see that as to where what has happened and since then and where we get our oil supplies from and our coal from, our scientists today then tell us that this earth at one time had to be a beautiful place, that it supported tremendous growth of vegetation, that it can no longer do so now, that many of the species of the animals no longer exist because the environment is no longer such that would allow them to do so. Now, I know that the evolutionist would try to push this back into millions and billions of years of time. Scriptures say this is the way it came forth from the hand of God before the curse of God was placed upon Adam because of his sin. Adam lived in a perfect environment, a place of beauty, and folks, so likewise will the new paradise be in glory to come. It will be not one whit less, it will be even more so glorious, because there will be no need for the sun. The Lord Jesus Christ will be the light in that. There will be no more need of the, of the ocean, of the sea. There will be no temple there. For God himself shall satisfy his people through the person of Jesus Christ and him alone. Secondly, Adam's paradise provided a river of satisfaction and joy. So there shall be a river in the heavenly or celestial paradise as well. We read in our account in Genesis 2 about a river flowing out of Eden and parting into four different channels. And those channels were given the famous names which we still have today. Then we read in Revelation 22 of a river flowing out from the throne of God itself, and that wherever that river flowed, it healed the nations, or that there was to be no sickness there, because men would be well forever and ever and ever. Now look in Psalm chapter 16 and verse 11, and let's get the comparison and the analogy here. Psalm chapter 16 and verse 11, two passages of Scripture which will show that a river in the Bible is symbolic and refers to satisfaction and joy. Psalm 16, verse 11. David says, Thou will show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures Forevermore. Notice the adjectives, joy and pleasure. Fullness of joy in the presence of God, the right hand of God, pleasures forevermore. Now look in Psalm 36. Psalm 36 and verses 8 and 9. Here David also states, 
they shall be abundantly satisfied with the fatness of thy house, for thou shalt make them drink of the river of thy pleasures. For with thee is the fountain of life. In my light we shall see light. A beautiful comparison from the word of God. As the river that flowed out of Eden represented the satisfaction that comes from communion with God, the tree of life, if you please, so to live in the presence of God, to commune with him, is the highest level of satisfaction that a descendant of Adam's race can ever partake of in this life or in the life to come. And our text in Revelation spoke of that river which came out of the throne of God and watered all of those that came in contact with it, the redeemed of all of the ages. Thirdly, Adam in paradise knew no sorrow. Likewise, there shall be no sorrow in the heavenly paradise. If you look at how that Adam was given all of those privileges prior to his fall, he knew nothing about sorrow, pain, dissatisfaction, and discontentment. Adam was truly blessed. In Revelation chapter 21 and verse 4, which we read, that God shall wipe away all what? All tears, all sorrow, all pain shall pass away, and those former things associated with a cursed world shall be remembered no more. That is, they'll never be experienced again by the saints of God. In that first paradise, there was joy without sadness. Do you ever have joy in this life? Sure you do. But do you ever have joy alone? No, it's mingled with sadness, isn't it? In that first paradise, Adam had strength without weakness. In that first paradise, Adam had health without sickness. In that first paradise, Adam had light without darkness in his mind. In that first paradise, Adam had life without death. Thus it will be in the paradise to come. What we are experiencing today is a mingling of all of these ingredients. As I'm looking upon you this morning, I see individuals that have joy in life, but I also know from talking with you as your pastor that you have burdens and sorrows to carry as well. That's associated with living in a fallen, sinful, cursed world. I see people who have strength in your bodies, and yet I also see you come to church week after week from time to time. You come here with colds, you come here with limps, you come here with strained muscles. You have weaknesses mingled with your body strength. You have health, but you also have sickness. You have life, but you're also exposed to death. Your friends and your relatives die, and you have to go to funerals. Yet you still have life. There will come a day in which that your life may perhaps leave in this body. What are we saying? This temporal world that is sandwiched like a piece of meat 
between the first paradise and the second paradise is associated with sin, sickness, suffering, and death. And when that new paradise comes, God shall wipe away all of those things because he tells us he shall lift the curse from the earth. And men shall be enabled to partake of the same joy only on an escalated scale above that which Adam enjoyed in the first paradise. Oh, my. I have not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man what God hath prepared for them that love him. You know, we have, because we've never lived in a paradise and never seen a true paradise, I think that we get so accustomed to living in this life that we get so attached to this world that we just say, let's just live here forever. Folks, I'm not one of those. And the longer I live, the more that God is giving me an increased desire for a place in which that I can have joy without any sorrow where I can have strength without any weakness, where I can have health without any sickness, where I can have light in my thinking without any cloudy forgetfulness. <laughs> hmm? That's a frustrating thing for a minister. I guess it is for nearly anybody. When you get to age and start forgetting, that be something to be able to think and have your rational faculties just as sharp forever and ever and ever. Nothing diminishing. I can throw away these glasses. I can get rid of my hearing aid. Oh, my. Paradise. I long for that to come. Now, those of you who don't have that problem, why, then you can just stay here on this earth. I, I'm going to go on. I'm going to leave my hearing aid and my glasses here. You can, you can borrow them and have them while you're here. But this is not my idea of a place I want to spend the rest of my life or forever in. Up in the Midwest, we have a saying about going on vacations. A lot of people from the Midwest have this when they go to Florida. They nearly all come back and say, how would you like Florida? Well, I enjoyed it, but I sure wouldn't want to live there. Now, I don't know why that is. I guess the people who live in Florida, well, they think it's, it's great. But I happen to be one of those. I like the beaches. Boy, oh, I'd hate to live in a place where you never saw anything, a tree any higher than 15 or 20 feet high. Where everything's sand and roaches that are that long in your houses. That's not my idea of a place to live. It might be all right to visit, but I don't want to live there. The longer I live in this world, the longer I see this is not my home, Brother Joe. I'm just passing through. And it's a bearable place. But my place that I'm longing for is laid up in a paradise that's come. Something better than this. There's just got to be a better place than this. If in this life, this is all we have, Paul says, we're of all men most miserable. If the Christian experience, all it does is just enable us to get along better in this life, what real value is it? Oh, there's a better life that's coming than this life. Adam in paradise knew no sorrow, neither shall the saints in heaven. Next of all, Adam in paradise knew no sin. Likewise, the saints in heaven. You recall that prior to the temptation by Satan, 
Adam knew no sin. He had a perfect communion with the Lord, with God. He could walk with him, talk with him. No sin entered in. He had nothing in his conscience which condemned him. He had no evil thoughts that affected him and his relationship with his wife whom God had given him. Look in Revelation chapter 22 and verse 3 once again. Revelation 22 and verse 3. There shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. Did you hear that? His servants shall serve him. What will it be like to be able to serve God without any hesitancy? What will it be like to commune and serve God without any indwelling principle of remaining sin? What would it be like? Now, let me ask you an honest question, and you give me an honest answer. Are there ever anything, is there ever anything that you read in the Bible in which that it just doesn't set right with you? Hmm? Now, you better nod your head yes, or else I'm already talking to a bunch of people who's already in paradise. You say, Pastor, I love this Bible. You may love this Bible, but this Bible reproves and it rebukes. And there are things within your sinful will which get cross-cut. Bible. And when sometimes when the preacher has to preach on a certain issue, he may not even know what's going on in your heart. You say, well, the preacher's after me today. And it's out of the text of the Bible. What would it be like to be able to go and come, rather, to the assembly of God's people like we're doing here at Oakland Baptist Church and be able to enjoy 100% of everything that comes forth from the book and just leave rejoicing? Wouldn't that be something? That's what it's going to be like in glory. There will no longer be any sin to hinder our thinking processes and our affections. Everything that God says, our heart will run out after it. Everything he says, our mind will be able to comprehend it. And everything he says, we'll be able to remember it and not forget it. The effect of sin will be lifted. Next of all, Adam in paradise enjoyed perfect communication with God. Likewise, so shall the saints in heaven. Look in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 8. Again, I think I can bear this out here. Genesis 3 and verse 8. This is after Adam fell, after he was tempted. He fell into sin, disobeyed God. We read verse 8, And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. This implies very, very strongly that before the fall, God came down and communed with Adam and Eve on a regular basis. He walked in the garden in the cool of the day, as if this was a regular scheduled time 
for Adam and Eve to partake of this communion. Only now they no longer welcome his presence. Now they use those very things which he had blessed them with to attempt to hide them from the presence and the face of the one that had created them. These lawful things, and I've been in the ministry long enough to hear excuses that people give for not serving God. Well, I've got a wife, and I've got some oxen. I've bought some land. All those things lawful, sure they are. But people use, Brother Jim, the very things that God created and blessed them with to keep them away from communion with Him. Why? Because there's something wrong in the heart now. But before sin entered in, Adam had a heart in paradise which enjoyed the communion with God Almighty. And if you enjoy some measure of that this morning, my hearer, oh, what lies in store for you in the paradise to come. If you long to have God speak clearly to you and to reveal His will, His love, His grace, His mercy unto you, and you want to know Him better now, what shall it be like when the sin of your nature is removed and you'll be able to commune with Him as Jesus Christ communed with Him? There at the Last Supper, when old John laid his head over on the bosom of Jesus, and he communed with his master. What will it be like when the saint of God will be able to commune with God with nothing interfering? Perfect God, perfect communion with him through the representative of Jesus Christ. Next of all, and last of all, but before we part from that, let's go to Revelation 21 and verse 3 again. Revelation 21, verse 3, the reason why that we cannot commune with him is that still we're in a world of sin. We have a nature within our very being. There shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. His servant shall serve him. Jesus stated in John chapter 14 and verse 3 that I go to prepare a place for you. Who can complete it for me? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again that where I am, there you may be. Also, where is Jesus going to be? He's going to be in the very presence of God, communing with God. Do you want to be there? He says, it's where I am, there you shall be also. Adam, oh, you remember what it was like to commune with God in the garden? Jesus said to us as fallen sons of Adam's race, redeemed by his blood, I go to prepare a paradise for you that where I am in communion with God, there you shall be also. You remember what Jesus said on one occasion? Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He says, my meat is to do God's will. Nothing hindered the communion with God on the part of Jesus Christ. He was sinless. and That's why he enjoyed communion with his heavenly Father so greatly while he was here on earth. And that's what was taken from him in his hell on Mount Calvary. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why hast thou forsaken me? He knew something 
had left him, but he had enjoyed. May that be restored to you and me in that paradise to come. And lastly, Adam in the garden had perfect knowledge given him. So shall the saints in heaven have perfect knowledge given them. How do you know this, Pastor? To show what a creature man was and what he had given unto man, God placed Adam in the garden and called the animals to come by. And Adam had such a mental capacity that whatever he named the animals, that's what they were called. And it doesn't mean that when Adam was created, that he called the sheep, sheep, or he called a dog, a dog, or he called this or that, and that has carried that same name on down through civilization. That's not that. But what it does mean is that Adam had an intellectual superiority that he could discern from all the different species of the creatures. And he could categorize them and put them in their particular identifying marks because he was the sovereign or the superior superior of them. Man today is still finding new creatures that he's never come across in the sea. He's giving them names. He can discern how they differ from this creature, from that creature. Man is still the sovereign over the fallen world in which he lives. But Adam had a perfect knowledge. Not partial knowledge, but a perfect knowledge that was not rendered impractical by sin. And you say, well, Pastor, how do you know that in the eternal state, man shall have that knowledge restored to him once again? And then others have asked me the age-old question, Pastor, do you think we'll know each other in heaven? <laughs> if you listen carefully, I think you'll get the obvious answer. If Adam had perfect knowledge in the first paradise, are we going to be any dumber in the next paradise? You recall that the disciples, Peter, James, and John, were given a little glimpse into what the eternal state was going to be when Jesus took them up on the Mount of Transfiguration and he transformed himself in their very presence. And there were two individuals that showed up there with Jesus. Their name was Moses and Elijah. Read your text. You don't have to find Jesus going over to Peter, James, and John and saying, Now, fellas, this is Moses and this is Elijah. They intuitively knew who they were. I venture to say, and that, in light of some three or four other passages, that when I stand before God, I also will know not only Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob intuitively, I shall know all the saints in that great number. There will be no strangers there, but I will feel like I have known them because I shall sit down in the kingdom of heaven with them, having had a perfect knowledge given unto me intuitively 
as Adam had to be able to name all the animals. So the saints of God in glory will be able to know all of the inhabitants that are there plus multitudes of other things. Then maybe I'll be able to understand calculus. Then I'll be able to understand algebra and all of those things. What does God have in store for us? Folks, we haven't even seen the hem of the garment yet. A paradise is coming. Now I close with this question, though, and this exhortation. No one goes into that paradise without being prepared to go there. It's a prepared place for a prepared people. And oh, it is simple, but it's difficult. It's simple in that it requires but a look at a crucified Savior and bowing yourself unto that crucified Savior. What must I do to be saved, to enter into that paradise to come? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. A child can do that. A child can do that. It does not require an extended amount of theology to be able to enter into that kingdom. But you say, well, preacher, why do you say it's simple, yet it's difficult? Because there will be an element within your will that will strive to resist that Lord who's on that throne. And if you enter in, you must take the kingdom of heaven by force. There must come within your being a binding of the strong man. Your will and taken captive by the ministry of the Holy Spirit of God. Or else you will never receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's why if you have a concern about that this morning, you ought to be praying not to your free will. You ought to be praying to the free grace of God. Oh, Lord Jesus, come and take me to heaven. Take me into your presence, God, even now. Let us pray.